0: Welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Liz Kelly. With the Super Bowl in the books, I wanted to let you know about all of our coverage across the site. We have Kevin Clark, Robert Mays, Roger Sherman, and more breaking down every aspect of the game, including winners and losers, key plays from the game, and the halftime show performance. Also, make sure to check out our YouTube channel, where Kevin Clark talked to Amari Cooper on So Newsday, and Roger Sherman chatted with players from each team for their thoughts leading up to the game. Be sure to watch and subscribe to our channel on YouTube.com/slash The Ringer.
1: David, Super Bowl 53 was denounced by the media as boring and dreary. Reaching for your trusty reporter's thesaurus, what other adjectives could we call the Super Bowl?
0: Oh, man. Um, uh, Plotting. Um, Mm, Good. I'm not Googling this. Interminable. Interminable. Um, uh, a soul sucking time vortex. Uh, Chop- no, I, it was choppy. It- <laughs> I woke up in the middle of the night. A little personal story. I woke up in the middle of the night to feed my infant son and um, and uh, checked work Slack just uh, you know through bleary eyes, and there was only one update since the time that I'd gone to bed, and that was our copy chief. Leaving a note for the East Coast uh, East Coast Morning Editorial Crew saying we have two stories with the word boring in the headline and I'm too tired to think of a synonym right now, <laughs> uh, but feel free to change one. Um, yeah, it was it was something, man. I mean, it was like that was it, that was at least there was a sort of unified take on the Super Bowl. There was no there was no mystery what people were going to be saying about it, and, and I think I guess that helps from an editorial
1: point of view. But man, it was it was slow going, man. It used to be a rule that you never put boring in a headline, because readers would look at it and say, "Well, that article is boring." If you're talking about something boring, but I'm not sure that the Super Bowl Fifty Three deserved even that rule. I think it just like it's I think that's what pe- I think that's what the people want, right? That's the content we want. Describe to me in a funny way how the Super Bowl was boring. Exactly. Yeah, and uh, and I might ride with you.
0: When everybody has the same Twitter joke, you're just looking to your uh, to your trusty uh, web journalism outlets for confirmation.
1: <laughs> we are America's favorite soul-killing media podcast. This is the Press Box, <laughs> a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. The Press Box is the media podcast where you're not allowed to use the metaphor, the fire festival of fill-in-the-blank. We are Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker of The Ringer and three big topics today. David, first, we have more thoughts on the Super Bowl than there were points scored in the Super Bowl. Some deep media think on a deeply unsatisfying big game. Second, we discuss the launch and Hindenburg crash of the presidential campaign of Howard Schultz, coffee billionaire. Is this even a story? And finally, the other huge sports news of the week, the Knicks trade of Chris Tapp's Porzingis to the Mavericks. Why are NBA trades so effing popular? Plus, our weekly notebook dump, and of course, the overworked Twitter joke of the week. But, David, let's start here with the Super Bowl. Topic number one David, here was the MVP of Super Bowl 53. No, not Julian Edelman, won Tony Romo. They went all out pressure. Belichick waited the whole game to send it, and Gilmore wasn't going to get beat deep, waiting for the big time interception. Did you, David, have a chance before the Super Bowl even started? to watch a documentary called Tony goes to the super bowl. I'm not making this up. That was airing (laughs) on CBS.
0: No, I'm this is news to me that that exists.
1: It was, you know, those little documentaries they show at political conventions that are just sort of like, you know, here's Kamala Harris. Here's Donald Trump. This essentially was that, but part of the super bowl (laughs) pregame show was just like, you like Tony Romo. You all love him. Here's your chance to spend some time in his company. And it and it was really incredible. It it had like Romo sings in the booth before the game starts, just as I think a kind of way to loosen him up, that kind of thing, which is not not out of the ordinary actually for sports announcers. A lot of them pump music into the booth right. or into their headphones to kind of get themselves in the mood. He was singing. Wait, this is this goes directly to you and I. It's like he's speaking to us. The theme song from Who's the Boss. I'm yeah. not kidding. <laughs> <Why>? <laughs> Oh my gosh, they, I have a newfound respect for the guy. Yeah. I felt, uh, how, first of all, let me ask you, how did you think Tony Romo did announcing the Super Bowl after so much hype and buildup? I
0: thought he did well. I thought he did well. I thought, you know, there was, there wasn't as much, you know, uh, uh, prognostication or prediction as, as, as uh, I think some people were hoping for. I think that, you know, would have been, there would have been a little bit more opportunity if either team had been running offensive plays at any point in the game. But, um, but uh, I thought, I thought overall, he uh, he 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 did he he made you know he, he, I was I was paying more attention to him and enjoying him uh, you know more than I have announcers in years past, and certainly for for how sort of plotting the game was, um, you know, he, he
1: he did a good job. I think I'm most amazed at the effect he's had on Jim Nance, and also on the public media perception of Jim Nance, mm-hmm. which is that. And I, had, I asked Nance about this at the at the in Atlanta this week, and he said, you know, and I said a lot of people say that you have this new energy, and that you are just, you know, kind of grooving now with Tony Romo, and I didn't actually know how Nance would react to that because, in one sense, it's a compliment; on the other sense, it's like, you know, wait, was I was I so boring before? Sure. And he just said, yeah, he said I think it's true, and the point he made I thought that was interesting is he was like, I always just try to match up to what my analyst does so if it's you know bill raftery in the ncaa tournament i'm trying to kind of go there if it's you know the majesty of the masters and nick faldo and all that stuff i'm trying to go there and if it's you know phil sims who was let us say pretty downbeat by the end of his run at the cbs booth um versus tony romo then he's going to match that too and you just feel him just smiling along with Tony during these broadcasts and just sort of coming to life in a really strange and kind of wonderful kind of way. I don't know. It's just that to me, I mean of all the Romo stuff and we've discussed a lot of it, but that that is that is one of the weird sort of secondary miracles of Romo is that he's sort of just found this new gear for Jim Nance. I couldn't agree more um I I don't know if
0: this is a if this is a you know a, a negative or a positive, but I, I'm I'm enthralled by the sort of um, vague tension that's on the screen, not between them, but the tension when they appear on the screen together. Because um, you know when it's just them talking, when you're just hearing their voices, you do. It's Nance's. It's like it's like two buddies talking about football in a really in a in a fairly intelligent way. Uh, And the and it's and it's really intriguing. I mean, it's it's really uh, gripping. Um, But every time they cut to the booth, it's like Tony is like Tony is he's just natural. He's a natural, right? I mean, he's almost like a uh, whatever the word is for for like a physical actor, an actor who starts with the body and then it just comes out. It's all just like he's just talking to his buddy. And Nance has this like very visceral uh, like he almost looks agitated as he's making the words come out of his mouth to match Tony's excitement. Uh, and he's and just like standing perfectly still it's really it's 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 really great but yeah i i uh, i mean the calls i mean the, nance's call was was really spot on and and incredibly enjoyable and you're right i mean he's a he's 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 found he's found another gear or at least recaptured an old one
1: yeah i i, I sort of think that tension you're seeing is between tony being totally undisciplined and mm-hmm. nance being you know just the face of a disciplined letter perfect play-by-play guy because the thing yeah. about romo is he breaks all these rules that you're supposed to you know quote unquote observe right one of which is like hey when the ball is snapped that's when the play-by-play guy talks you're not talking yeah. during that period and you see romo all the time jumping over the snap going hey jim jim they got the defense attack jim he's got look he's mm-hmm. gonna be open over the middle and you know they've made that work so well because yeah. again, it's like, I remember a couple of years ago, Grand Hill talked when the winning shot was in the air in the NCAA tournament and, which, and you're just like, oh my gosh, like, you you know, that's like, oh gosh, I can all, just imagine what Nance is thinking in a moment like that. But he has found a way to let Romo just sort of improvise and come in around him and give him so much space to do that stuff. I, it's, it's pretty amazing. I do think listening to Romo that, his big challenge for year three is he's got to find out a tone uh, to adopt when games aren't very good or aren't very Mm -hmm. close, because there was a lot of bad in that game yesterday, especially Jared Goff. And you didn't get a ton of Tony Romo kind of just, you know, not bagging on anybody, but I think just kind of recognizing the quality of play that's in front of us. You know, yeah. it's like when the game was tied three, three earlier in the second half, he's like, we got a tie game. Jimmy is tie, we got a game here, you know, and it's like, yeah, <laughs> but the rest of us have been watching this for two hours and it's really boring, you know, yeah. and it's almost that's almost where you'd want a little of that Chris Collinsworth edge, I think, and a little sure. bit of that Chris Collinsworth. Like, I'm just going to I'm sorry. I just got to say it. I can't watch this anymore. And Romo, you know, because he's so positive, and I think probably you'd probably take that, but he just doesn't have that yet. And I sort of yeah. want to see him do that at some point.
0: Sure, I mean, in the, and the and he had presumably has insight uh, that he, I mean, that that, that could have, uh, I don't know if it could have spiced things up, but at least it would have added a layer of interest to the story. And I mean, it's the 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 inactivity in the game was in some ways really compelling. It doesn't make for a very interesting game to watch, but like I desperately wanted to hear someone talk about the, just the feet, just the, the feeling of, of paralysis or of hopelessness that comes when you realize that you are, you know, that your coach is trying everything, you're trying everything and there's just no way forward. Right. And there, I mean, and Tony Romo, one would think would have some insight into that, but instead it was. You're right. It was a little bit rah rah. It was a little bit waiting for you know some cues that weren't going to present themselves. And and uh, I think yeah. I mean, I think I think you're right. I mean, he, he has no trouble filling time. He's such a you know, like you said, sort of devil may care natural at it that that he that that maybe you know that sort of that sort of uh, preparation is 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 what the, is the next step for him.
1: A couple of notes for you: the Gladys Knight national anthem. Now, we know that we know that the networks have avoided the national anthem when players are kneeling during it. But boy, once nobody's kneeling, do they love to drink up that patriotic Evian water? I mean, you know, the close ups of the players and then the flyover. And I saw Laura Ingram tweeting her excitement about the anthem. You know, it's sort of like that was a low key. You know, again, like in the in the pageantry of Super Bowls, which are all about waving the flag. It's no big deal and totally normal with Uh the backdrop of Colin Kaepernick and other things that the NFL has tried to willfully erase from its memory. (laughs) (laughs) That was that was still pretty stunning to me. I don't know. I'm watching this going, whoa. You know, this is the jingoism, like straight into the heart. You know, like here we go. We're proud to be (laughs) Americans here.
0: And, and, and this is, you know, this is a little bit of a sidebar, but it turned out that like wh- wh- the, the online discussion of whether or not Gladys Knight is the bee on the Masked Singer turned out to be one of the more uh, compelling storylines of the evening. <laughs> nothing, n- nothing really happened in the game that or not much happened in the game that that uh, that, that led to as much like like you searching through Twitter for uh, for me anyway.
1: Nothing. Nothing has surprised me more in American life than the popularity of the mass singer. I mean, like <laughs> mass singer number one, Trump. Trump's election as president number two. I don't. I don't get it.
0: Um, can, can number was, three be why was, Todd Gurley wasn't playing in the Super Bowl?
1: <laughs> yes, because that's where I'm going next. How how did the media not solve that mystery by game time or even during the game yesterday? I was kind of figuring it was going to be a sideline reporter news dump. You know, sometimes they get it and you're not allowed to share it until game time,
0: mm-hmm. but
1: you know, and, and then, you put it out there when it's kind of safe, but all we got, even after the game from Sean McVay was, oh, Todd Gurley's fine. no problems at all. 10 carries 35 yards, a total non-factor for the second game in a row. That was weird. And. I just think when you have a billion reporters all after the story, it just always amazes me when there's something they kind of can't figure out. Well, I mean,
0: to me, the most I mean, in, in the most compelling argument or the most compelling theory that I heard was that he was hurt and McVeigh was deliberately obscuring that so that, you know, to that, to mess with the scouting reports or whatever else and then had to kind of stick to it to the bitter end because of whatever League rule liability, he would have, you know, been subject to. Uh, but Gurley sure didn't seem like he was part of some sort of scheme when he was interviewed after, during, before, during, and after the game. You know, um, it was really weird. And I think that I think if it had been a better game, I mean, certainly if the if the if the Rams had won, um, that kind of all would have gone by the wayside. But um, but in a in a night, you know, that was like sorely in need of just. Some sort of mystery, um, some sort of suspense. You know, the the, the question about Todd Ger- Todd Gurley sort of filled that hole, even even if it was sort of an,
1: an awkward storyline. You had know that one carry called back in the fourth quarter when it looked like he was gonna maybe run them down to a touchdown or something, you know. And that was, but anyway, it didn't happen. Did you happen to notice David baseball writers using a boring Super Bowl? And the MVP for PED, uh, I was going to say suspect, but P- convicted PED guy, Julian Edelman, to troll football and football fans. Uh, <laughs> yes, I did see a, some kind of, of a <laughs> weird, weird subplot. Yeah. Tyler Kepner, the New York Times. What was the last World Series as uninteresting as this Super Bowl? Maybe 1999. <laughs> Uh, Kepner, again, a reminder that in baseball, Julian Edelman would have not been eligible to play in this postseason because he served a PED suspension this season. John Heyman, <laughs> longtime baseball insider NFL summary, Kaepernick blackballed Edelman glorified. <laughs> um, so that was weird. I mean, so, <laughs> so I, mean, I just love seeing the baseball true believer reassert themselves and I, I kind of have a soft spot for baseball true believer because it's just so Determinedly out of fashion in this oh, day yeah. and age. NBA I, true believer, man, you're getting all the money, but baseball true believer, you were you were fighting the tide, buddy. But they came yeah, out and, I, in force.
0: I was I was blissfully unaware. I thought that we had moved on. I thought we had moved beyond the like like the ped's or universally bad uh, point of view, even in the baseball world. But I guess not. Or at least for the sake of making an argument, um, you know, anything goes. I mean, I had I don't know. Uh, it, it, it some of i mean it was some of them on their own each of them made for you know made for like kind of good little bits of snark but but taken as a whole it was it, you know it, it's always funny to watch people from other from other you know beats that are just like come in with their like just really deliberate point of view catering to their own audience during the <laughs> d- during other events <laughs> um you know I've i lord knows I've had my share of just like making wrestling jokes during presidential debates and whatnot but like you know it's a it, it it there there there's a limit I think to the usefulness or the and even even the humor of all that but uh, yeah I don't know I this this is uh, beside the point I don't know if you watch the halftime show but uh, but uh, I'm pretty sure Adam Levine was glad they're not spot testing the musical acts either because he probably
1: wouldn't have been uh, eligible to, uh, <laughs> to 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 play in the postseason either and <laughs> the um there's a really good column I'm gonna ignore that uh, insinuation there's a really good column from Joe. <laughs> She and baseball writer who just talks about how this is completely, who does not use this opportunity to stand on a high horse, but says um, violating drug policy in the NFL is a misdemeanor because it serves the NFL for it to be a misdemeanor and violating the drug policy in MLB is a felony because it serves MLB for it to be a felony. And it's a really mm-hmm. good column that sort of traces all this through labor. Anyway, I encourage everybody to check that out um, post game, David, Tracy Wolfson goes, CBS sideline reporter goes to interview Tom Brady (laughs) and is lost (laughs) for a few minutes. And we kind of hear this disembodied voice going. And now Tom Brady is embracing Julian Edelman. And now Brady is embracing Belichick. And now Brady is embracing Kraft. And it just went on and on it
0: was like one of those youtube videos of like the local reporter who's like and then and now the hurricane is coming in and then they just get like like whale, they just get like smacked on the side of the head by a <laughs> flying mailbox or something like that she tracy wolfson like went to went for her like standard post game interview and just got caught in like a in a black flag mosh pit uh, and it was it was it was pretty amazing i mean everybody was commenting <laughs> on it you occasionally would just see your head pop up and it was just these like the scrum of like of media who was just trying to get all the Brady footage they can was just like pushing in. Brady had the security team that seemed to be more impressive than any offensive line he's ever played behind that was pushing everybody back. But their voices were the loudest ones in the audio of the whole thing as they were trying to yeah. you know, maintain crowd control.
1: And uh, and they and, kept saying stuff like I'm trying to help you, right? They were trying to help her. That's what they kept saying. I'm yeah, trying to eventually help you. I'm they, trying to help. Eventually
0: you. they eventually they, they one of them did wrangle the you know the 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 post game interview. He's like, "Which one is your camera? Okay, we're getting you in here now." But there was, you know, apparently everything every you know, I mean maybe there's something sort of refreshing about the fact that like despite, you know, I mean God love Tracy Wolfson, but like everything sort of takes a backseat to the human element of Brady embracing, you know, opposing players and coaches and, and his own teammates and everything else. I think that that's uh, you know, there's something sort of nice about that. But it was it was, it did it did lend a little bit of drama to a uh, to a kind of quiet fourth quiet fourth quarter.
1: And I and I think it's you know, everybody jokes about sideline reporters all the time, but I think there are moments when reporting is reduced to a physical act rather than mm-hmm. an intellectual act, and you just have to physically get the person. Anybody Mm -hmm. who's done sports writing knows this uh, by shoving around a locker room or kind of running down a hallway to get somebody or in Congress or whatever it is. And it's like she just has to get Tom Brady. She does not have to wrangle Tom Brady through a publicist. She doesn't have to set up. She just has to physically corral Tom Brady. And that is the most, you know, kind of like I said, like basic reporterly function. And she. God bless her. She got him. Um, my other favorite, by the way, CBS is Evan Washburn, who was the other sideline reporter. He, when CBS does the Super Bowl, he gets to talk to the losing coach. And I'm pretty sure this was only on CBS SN. I did not see it on the actual uh, big CBS post game show. But Evan Washburn often looks more shaken than the losing coach. Like he he start. <laughs> I think it was Rod Rivera a couple of Super Bowls ago, and he goes, he comes like, Coach, I mean. I don't know what, you know, I don't know what to say. Oh my God. You know, you must and Ron Rivera actually looked fine. And I was like, mm-hmm. Ron Rivera is okay. Somebody go find, somebody go get some help for Evan Washburn. But um, <laughs> I just want to note that he, he sort of corrected this time and Sean McVay legitimately looks sadder than Washburn. So that was, that was kind of a big moment in, uh, in Super Bowls for me. Um, quote of the game or of the post game goes to Rams tackle, Andrew Whitworth. Oh, who told God. our very own Robert Mays at the end of the day, <laughs> yes. we're all going to die, <laughs> <laughs> which feels like the existential sequel to the all time uh quote, quote from Dwayne Thomas running back. The Cowboys who said, if the Bowl is the ultimate game, how come they're playing it again next year? Which is really, <laughs> it's really fantastic. They are bookends. If you want to get past X's and O's, go talk to Dwayne Thomas or uh, Andrew Whitworth. That was awesome. Oh my God.
0: Whitworth has had and a great fun. role ever since he signed with the with the Rams. Whitworth has taken on this weird like spiritual animal role for the for the entire press corps. Uh, I don't know if it was because of like the sad shape of the team that he played for before signing there, but you know it, it is, there is something very interesting about you know some players will sign with a team like the Rams and and be seen as like front runners or ring chasers, and he's just sort of like this you know workaday you know guy who's just like trying to find success in a in a world where he's never been able to sniff it you know and and uh, and it, it it's sort of fitting. Maybe maybe I'm reading too much into it, and maybe it's just that this guy has just been the most incredible quote the entire time, or this just sort of like dark philosopher throughout throughout his entire career. That was <laughs> a real a real incredible moment, and one of those great moments where multiple people, like everybody in the scrum, tweeted that quote at the exact same time. You know, like everybody's everybody wants to get that out there into the world. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And Mays tweeted the context, which makes a lot more sense, but it just sounded like the ultimate (laughs) dire loser's locker room quote. By the way, I think it's part of the part of the part of the power of it is how Andrew Whitworth looks, because he looks kind of like, you know, John Fetterman, who's the lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania, you know, the guy was mayor. So, like, when existential truths are coming out of the mouth of a guy that just looks like that,
0: there's Mm -hmm. a little bit
1: more of a there's a little bit gives it a little more oomph. Um, I want to close, David, by talking about the Washington Post commercial that yeah, ran yeah. in the fourth quarter during the two minute warding. Let me give you a little bit of Tom Hanks doing the narration. When our nation is threatened, there's someone to gather the facts to bring you the story, no matter the cost. Because knowing empowers us, knowing helps us decide, knowing keeps us free. They used to have a uh, halftime act at the Super Bowl called "Up with People." Remember that? that was like in our childhood. So this is yeah. "Up with Journalism." This is this is the sequel. This is the. <laughs> I love this tweet from our old pal Dan Engber. Of course, the newspaper industry would invest its remaining millions in an ad that runs when the game is essentially over and no one cares anymore. That was good. <laughs> also, a note from page six, um, which might be true. Jeff Bezos pulled the plug on a $20 million Super Bowl ad for his spaceflight company, Blue Origin, after it was revealed his mistress had helped shoot footage for the commercial. And, oh, and this man. might have been the fill the in for the spot he bought. What did you make of... Um, of advertising the virtues of journalism during the ultimate game.
0: Um wow. Uh I mean I know the Washington Post is doing really well, but you know, in in a week of like mass media layoffs, I'm not sure if that was the if spending 20 million dollars on a Super Bowl ad really like balanced the scales at all. But um but yeah, you know, you know, I'm sure that like now all those post employees have something that they can show their kids to explain what they do on
1: Career Day or whatever. That's that's nice. Shockingly, it was popular on Twitter with journalists. I don't know if you know this, but jur- <laughs> when you extol the virtues of journalism in the most grandiose manner, journalists get really excited. We are the cheapest dates in the world, baby. It's amazing. All right, David. Now it's time for the overworked Twitter joke of the week, where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter. Made it at exactly the same time. Can we get the non-Super Bowl entrance out of the way? And then I'll cut back to the uh, Super Bowl theme. Yeah, let's do that. According to Reuters, Foxconn, remember the company Foxconn, is reconsidering its plans to make advanced liquid crystal display panels at a $10 billion Wisconsin campus. The $20 million million square foot campus, excuse me, was praised by President Donald Trump as proof of his ability to revive American manufacturing. (laughs) So it was an overworked (laughs) and very easy overworked Twitter joke to say Fox Cond. Thanks to Drew Lewis for that one. Yeah, I know. Um, Since we probably should say the name Ralph Northam in this podcast, gulp, uh, he being the Democratic governor of Virginia who had a blackface picture in his yearbook, it was an overworked Twitter joke to say when the question many are asking after your apology is, are you the guy in blackface or the KKK outfit? You're in deep (laughs) Deep trouble. Thank you to Matthew Benson for that one. And now for the Super Bowl, David, the Super Bowl of overworked Twitter jokes. Did you notice how many people were calling Jared Goff Jared Gaff during the game? <laughs> Jared Gaff. <laughs> Speaking of reaching for your thesaurus, um, uh, it was an overworked Twitter joke to suggest when the Rams were in the midst of eight straight punts that punter Johnny Hecker should be the MVP.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, Another one, quote, both teams are playing like they don't want to visit the White House. That was uh, <laughs> I thought that was actually pretty good uh, when they had that cool ad for the NFL's 100th anniversary that had all the players in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was an overword Twitter joke to say Gurley has more yards in that NFL 100 ad than in the game. Oh, wow. The halftime show. Now, it's probably a good idea to do the halftime show, but do you think Maroon 5 knew that the halftime show was going to be an an occasion for people who don't think about Maroon 5 at all in their daily lives just to make jokes (laughs) about Maroon 5
0: I I think they had to be dimly aware of it I mean on on the one hand they're the sort of perfect act to fill in that space Um, but there was a little I mean when they announced that Maroon 5 was performing it was in the midst of a Uh, it's a a great you know quandary into who actually like what is the halftime show and who would be willing to even play the halftime show in current year so uh i don't know if they were doing it as a favor or if they were just i don't know how what their decision making was but they had to be canny enough to know there'd
1: be a lot of that couple of maroon five overworks um number one and this man i saw this a hundred times halftime colon maroon five patriots three ram (laughs) zero so many people did yeah. that one uh, another one I still haven't heard a good explanation of why I'm not watching Imagine Dragons right now <laughs> Okay, I saw that at least twice weirdly and a legitimately funny one from Jamel Hill and our own Tyler Tynes uh, <laughs> while watching Adam Levine perform This Is Gentrification which I thought was <laughs> really excellent
0: <laughs>
1: oh, and how about is this the first ever time that LeBron James has had an overworked Twitter joke <laughs> middle of the game he tweets man where's shams woge haynes McMinneman at with a shrug emoji um, <laughs> one of many people tweeting during the super that the super bowl was so boring so if you were lusting for a woge bomb in the middle of the super bowl congrats you made the overworked Twitter joke <laughs> of the week a lot of people to thank here greg connors patrick haran at jrock 414, Daniel Payne, Elia Powers, Brendan Schneider, Jason McGenzie, Biso, and at Argal Umbrella. And by the way, David, special thanks to Greg, just Greg, who tweeted an overworked Twitter joke at Brian Koppelman. Um, <laughs> please please leave Brian Koppelman alone to write screenplays. Just send him here. We'll, we'll take care of this. Don't worry. Um, all right, David. Topic number two, Starbucks founder and billionaire Howard Schultz announced he is maybe yes. sort of interested in running for president. Kind of amazing that Howard Schultz isn't actually running for president at this point, but we're still talking about this. Anyway, here is how Schultz was greeted by his cheering supporters.
0: I am seriously considering running for president as a centrist independent. And I wanted to clarify the word independent, which I view uh, merely as a designation on the ballot. And what,
1: help elect Trump. You egotistical billionaire. (laughs) Do you think that guy sent in a donation after that?
0: Oh my gosh. Oh
1: my gosh. What timing and
0: what, what enunciation? I mean, that was just, that was a, that was a tour de force.
1: It's amazing how clear it was, wasn't it? (laughs) Yes. When I first saw like just the like transcript version, I was like, surely we're not going to be able to hear this, but man, we heard it just fine. So a couple of interesting things I think about the Schultz candidacy from from our uh, demented media perspective here. Number one, nobody knows anything about Howard Schultz either personally or his or certainly his political views. So we're watching him being vetted on the fly, like literally live on television. I um, don't you watch any of the Morning Joe interview he did? Yeah, Uh, the other day, and I can't believe I'm saying this, but it was I thought as vets of rando presidential candidates go, it was really pretty good. Mm -hmm. Um, You sort of had Willie Geist and Mike Barnacle pressing him on why he wasn't running as a Democrat. And then on the other hand, you had Mika Brzezinski, like being able to accidentally generate all these gaffes, like him saying that Reagan never took his coat off in the Oval Office. Not true. Um, Mm -hmm. him saying that the best democratic president in the last 50 years was fdr and here's uh mika testing whether howard schultz can truly be a man of the people how much does an 18 ounce box of cheerios cost an 18 ounce box of Mm -hmm. cheerios Mm -hmm. i don't know here's the deal (laughs) here's the deal you ask us. yeah yeah, how, You know, like budgets for the V.A. We're yeah. going to ask you questions. About <laughs> want. I don't need. I don't need Cheerios. I'm sorry. OK, it's Cereal. four bucks. Is yeah. it four bucks? Yeah, Wow. Yeah. a yeah. lot. Yeah. yeah, it's wow. Yeah. I think the real news here might be that Joe Scarborough also doesn't know how much Cheerios cost. Like <laughs> Howard Schultz has an excuse. <laughs> He's the megalomaniacal billionaire. Joe Scarborough is just a megalo- megalomaniacal millionaire. Like shouldn't you have no? <laughs> Didn't you have bought a box of Cheerios at some point?
0: It just shows up on the front door from Postmates or whatever. I mean, you don't have to actually like see how much it costs on the <laughs> shelf.
1: Man. The um, Schultz got a ton of press coverage. 60 Minutes, uh, The View, Anderson Cooper. What did you make of of something I saw over and over again this week, which was why are we treating Schultz, who has like a four percent approval rating? As a serious candidate and not treating other marginal Democrats as serious candidates. Oh, that's a uh, that's a good question.
0: Um, you know, I think that there is I mean, there's there's got to be some sense that the uh, that if he's running as an independent, the, the Democratic primary will sort of construct uh, the narrative for uh, media and, and, and Schultz is a story that is kind of being constructed in real time. And the media can really have a, have, you know, an active hand in, in telling that story. Um, I, it's, I think that, that, you know, he's, he's an interesting character and I think that people see him as, you know, as, as a, um, you know, an interesting counterpoint to Donald Trump. um, backstories and 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 you know business successes and, and everything else um but i think you know i mean there had to be some level of hope that he would come forward with some sort of policy that he you know some some sort of ideas that he did not um it, it is interesting i don't know what do you think
1: um well just on the basic que- basic question before we get to his uh very nebulous ideology i would say i don't i of course it's a news story right and of course mm-hmm. like you're telling me megalomaniacal billionaire wants to run for president and will potentially cost the democrats what could be a layup election and reelect donald trump mm-hmm. that sounds like a story that sounds like a story to me now yeah. you don't have to treat howard schultz seriously you don't have to you know pretend that this vision of centrism actually makes any sense or has any kind of hard ideals behind it. But like, of course that's news. Like, of course that's, that seems like a big deal. And I just, I feel a lot of this is like, again, I feel we could have like a weekly section of the podcast on this, but it's, it's Trump PTSD, which is, yeah, we gave the rich guy a lot of attention last time and he somehow got elected president. So let's never give, the rich guy attention again. And I, and I just don't, I don't know that that's the reason Trump got elected president. Um, If you watch these Howard, by the way, I got to say, having watched a couple of the Schultz things this morning, he was much better. I had just kind of read like accounts of it and seen tweets about it. Mostly hadn't watched Mm -hmm. it yet. He was much better on camera (laughs) than I thought, but he is not Donald Trump. He does not have that kind of magnetic appeal. So, yeah, I mean, I just, I just think, I just think it is a story. And I think when you watch, again, even stuff like Morning Joe, the clubbiest cable news show you could possibly imagine, like he goes on there and you sort of come out, come away thinking like, oh, boy, this guy doesn't have a lot of ideas. This guy doesn't really know what he's talking about. No, And um, that will do the job just fine.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the places that gave him coverage, I mean, Morning Joe's is a great example, would have given him that same slot if he had, you know, started a new charity. You know, he didn't have to be running for office to get airtime. He is a, you know, successful person that at least the people in those chairs are interested in. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you're right. The, the 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 sort of the emptiness of it is, I think, what you know, struck a lot of people as, as, as most galling, um, you know, we're used to independents or third party candidates being sort of technocrats or, uh, you know, issue candidates and not like gauzy idealists, you know, that are coming out here talking about, about how both parties have let us down, which is true, but it's not, you know, it's, it's not particularly helpful on its own. Um, and you know what we've seen with them. I mean, I think that the the kind of the most poignant critique, as as was evidenced by that great soundbite we played a minute ago, is that is that third party candidates have have come to be seen. You know, it's not it's not the the, the biggest obstacle for third party candidacies is is maybe not structural anymore. It's that they're they're viewed as a Trojan horse to just defeat one candidate or another. Right. I mean, it's it's not. Mm-hmm. It, the 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 actual message of the campaign is is totally secondary
1: to that you know preconceived uh notion yeah and he doesn't have much of an answer for that you know those are his weakest answer uh by far among a lot of weak answers is why don't you just run as a democrat and he mm-hmm. starts talking about how he can't you know it's like why don't you run as a centrist democrat you're a de- you were a democrat um you know, why don't he you know, why don't you try to do what Donald Trump did to the Democrats if you don't agree with their ideas is run in their primary and try to, you know, prove that your ideas are more popular than rank and file Democrats. But uh he doesn't really have a great answer to that. I mean, it's it feels like a very nineties campaign, does it not? I'm a rich guy. I yeah. know how to solve problems. I'm mm-hmm. gonna he keeps saying like I'm gonna point when they ask, you know, what are you gonna do about healthcare, you know, because of all the resistance you're going to face in congress and you keep saying oh i'm just going to have smart people tell me what to do right which sounds like a very ross Ross bro kind of thing and then also like i just have some kind of ceo know-how of how to get things done Mm -hmm. the um i read this piece by simon malloy in media matters who was going through some of the greatest hits of uh centrist movements wooing the media and then going nowhere (laughs) you'll remember the unity party and americans Mm -hmm. elect also total classic we've now forgotten which was Uh, Axios co-founder Jim Van writing about the innovation party that was going (laughs) to have Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg running the nation (laughs) yes (laughs) how did that turn out Um, and what he talked, you know what he talks about is how this how these kind of candidates are catnip to certain made men and women though mostly men in opinion media he mentions Yahoo's Matt by the Atlantic's David from and ABC's the note and that's all true but don't we live in a media world where those people are less powerful than they've ever been? You know, like I I did, I didn't know the note was still going. Honestly, I really did not know that. I, (laughs) yes, as a consumer of media, I was on, I just feel the media, the political media set up now that centrists actually garner maximum skepticism instead of the loving open embrace of David Brooks, which carries as much weight. What do you think about that?
0: Yeah, I mean and I think it's justifiable, right? I mean regardless of your politics, I think it's it means centrism is centrism is not a governing philosophy or maybe it is, maybe it's too much of a governing philosophy, but like tell us what you tell us what you believe, you know, don't tell us what your what 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 makes you like feel icky about the about the existing political parties, you know, about the about their you know structural problems. Um I think that and and I mean centrism just has you know, I mean, from a from a liberal point of view, I mean, centrism is is uh, feels like you know a, a, a hazy night out from you know last weekend that we're still trying to like come to grips with and and and, and recover from. Um, <laughs> it's it, it's all. I mean, it's it it just. I I I, it, I don't know. It, it just it just seems like a really it just seems like a a very strange way right now to try to you know to to try to make some noise and especially you know when when Mike Bloomberg is running as a democrat who's a you know strikes a sort of similar figure but uh but he's you know he he's decided to go the more he's decided to go the party route um and listen for you know regardless of what you think about about Donald Trump's seriousness was you know particularly when he was when he was running for president he was a he was something approaching a public figure for many years leading up to his campaign, you know, a, a political oh, yeah. figure. And this just feels like just the, the I mean, the, the the sort of novelty of Howard Schultz just sort of underscores this sort of feeling of, of lack of seriousness. Um, the fact that he's not coming out with any big, cam- you know, platform ideas, although he's, you know, eager to criticize um elizabeth warren and kamala harris on on you know healthcare and, and taxes uh you know i mean it's just it's like he was he was caught so flat-footed not having his own ideas that he that you know he was just like jumping he had to jump in with these like half-formed like negs on whatever they had to say um it's i mean it was it's just been a pretty spectacular brief run um I, oh, I, I, there was a there was a great there was a there was a tweet I just saw today from uh, I guess it was from a couple of days ago from a uh, uh, guy Dan Lavoie. who said Howard Schultz went from oh is he that Starbucks guy to this man represents literally everything wrong with late capitalism, and I will do everything in my power to stop his rise in like two and a half days. <laughs> uh, and then close out with so- solid work, Bill Burton, uh, who is the who is the political consultant. Um, who who is sort of steering the ship? Um, it's it's you know there's there are a lot of there, there's a lot of uh, reasons why this this thing might be kind of tanking the way that it is, but it's been pretty impressive to watch so far.
1: Yeah, and I think um, the biggest thing you're going to see next is journalists just dining out uh, for day after day or as long as this campaign lasts on vetting Howard Schultz because. There was a there was a post on the Lawyer Guns and Money blog by Paul Campos who mm-hmm. just did some very minor fact checking on Schultz's stories about how he got from the projects in New York City to college and the stories were just totally different. And, you know, and again, it was like a relatively minor sort of thing, and it wasn't it wasn't wasn't a big gotcha, but it was just one of those things where you just realize this person's public record, non-financial public, public record, has just not been scrutinized at all. Yeah. And, you know, this is the kind of stuff, and it was like Donald Trump, you know, it was almost, there were almost too many moving targets, but that's going to be the next thing, and that's going to be, you know, days, if not weeks of... You know big 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 investigative pieces and little investigative pieces and journalists are going to be very happy I believe <laughs> with all yeah. they get from that well and
0: I mean Jonathan Chay wrote a piece um, he wrote I think he's written a couple of pieces on on Schultz and and you know Chate for whatever thing that you think about him I mean does sort of strike the figure of someone who might be enamored with a Schultz candidacy but has been pretty uh, clear-eyed and, and antagonistic towards his chances. Um, and in the midst of of you know talking about some other issues he brings up that schultz, the, the fact that schultz was uh shocked at the uh at the degree of of democrat anger um and and says that that that, that his that, that very surprise should be just disqualifying for his candidacy candidacy that he was just <laughs> you know unprepared for this sort of response and i think that there's something to that i mean i don't think anything's disqualifying and i think that you know you're right that there's going to be a lot of Real time vetting and everything else. I mean, the interesting thing about Schultz is that regardless of what happens to him now, you know, if he continues to run as an independent, he can continue to run for as long as he wants to. You know, I mean, there's not, there's no DNC that's going to be, you know, elbowing him off the stage. Um, but, but I do think that, that, uh, you know the, the, there there will be a if if there there will be a you know more of a metaphorical elbowing off and and when people stop paying attention to an independent candidate like that, regardless of the amount of money that you have to spend, um, I think that'll you know I'm sure there's already been a rude awakening and it'll only continue.
1: All right, David. Topic number three: the Christap's Porzingis trade. Well, yes. I was wandering around Radio Row in Atlanta Thursday. The news came down that the New York Knicks had traded Porzingis to the Dallas Mavericks. Uh, for a package of players and draft picks and my first reaction uh, from the super bowl was to email the ringer's very own kevin clark and say r.i.p to the ringer's brief run as a football site because i knew <laughs> the ship <laughs> the super bowl was over baby soup the ship was turning toward the borzingas trade um i guess i'm interested mostly we'll leave the basketball analysis to uh to the, the other people but I'm amazed and interested in why stories like this aren't just kind of medium popular, but just grab everybody's attention in sports. I mean, this is sort of am I nuts to call this kind of a medium sized NBA trade? Is that Mm -hmm. is that nuts? Is this is this is this a giant NBA trade? I, I don't think so. It's sort of a medium trade. Um, it has some great soap opera stuff, as when Porzingis wrote. My suggestion to Knicks fans is to stay woke on his. <laughs> uh, I believe it was on Instagram Sunday morning, which was awesome. Also, was it MSG or which which Knicks uh, TV network put up the graphic of Porzingis, which oh, had like yeah. all the basic stats, and then at the <laughs> and then just that in the middle of it said skipped exit meeting with front office after 2016 17 season. Um, that was really funny, just a way of getting back at him. But what do you think? Why does Gosh. this story like this have so much salience with us at The Ringer and with everybody else? Well, first of all, uh, go Mavericks. And
0: uh, I, I look forward to... Yeah, sorry, our, I should have let that.
1: Go Mavericks. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: look forward to our upcoming segment in uh, in a year or two about the, uh, the way the media is covering the Mavericks championship. Um, the... Uh, yeah, I mean, this is a, this was a really weird one. Um, a lot of different factors in play. I mean, I think for one thing, it just happened so quickly, uh, and and we can get into the you know the kind of the TikTok of it in a little bit. But you know, from from the moment that like there was any rumor at all about Porzingis uh, changing location until until the. Uh, the trade was finalized was I mean it just seemed like the blink of an eye right and so it so it, it was actually news that was breaking sort of on a Twitter timeline and I mean that I guess in two different ways um, but it, it was it, it it all it just seemed so urgent and so real and there's also this when the details of the trade started to trickle out it seemed it did seem like it, it is I, I, I take what you mean by it being a medium-sized trade this is not you know superstar for superstar or whatever but but it did seem like a really lopsided trade. And so there's all yes. th- there there was a lot of fans uh, there I mean fans were justifiably kind of perplexed as to one what the rest of the story was. Now the trade as it as it as it sort of, you know, came out, the trade was a little bit was less lopsided than it seemed. But um, there were questions about, like, well, I mean, is is Porzingis more hurt than we than we've let on? Is he just, you know, I mean, there's the sort of existential question: is he just less of a superstar than we've been led to believe by the media for the past several years? You know, is it is there, you know, is there something else at play? And then there's, then there's the the real deeper uh, story, which is, um, if you know, all presuppositions are true, and the Knicks are really just only interested in clearing out their caps so that they can sign. Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving next summer. Well, then you know it's pretty amazing that there is a story that is that uh, significant that just no one can really report because it would break any any and every NBA bylaw to 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 acknowledge that it's true. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's just there there are a lot. It's not and it's not it's not just Porzingis then, right? I mean, we're talking about Porzingis and every top tier free agent next summer. We're talking about. Uh, Luka Doncic and 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 you know his his rise as a rookie to NBA prominence and what this means for you know his timeline. There's a lot, of the, a lot and, and of course there's Mark Cuban and much more significantly James Dolan and the just his just hapless uh, helming of the of the New York Knicks. There's just a lot of there's a lot of major players in the NBA soap opera here, um, more than just uh, Chris taps Porzingis. Who is an amazing player and who will be very healthy very soon and
1: leading the Mavericks to a championship? So I got like four reasons there: the suddenness of the trade, which is the suddenness yeah. of any news story, right, mm-hmm. contributes to it. Whether the Knicks got robbed, which is a yeah. pretty standard sports story. Uh-huh. Free agency hypotheticals that this unlocks yeah. uh, for next summer and beyond, and then this sort of thing that Bill talks about a lot, which is this sense that people are conspiring in the NBA behind mm-hmm. the scenes, you know, with tampering and free agency and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I, I hesitate to use the words NBA dark web that our old pal, Jake Kang used. but you know, there's a sense <laughs> that the sense that there are these unseen forces working in, in the NBA that everybody is dying to know about and that are controlling everything. And that story never gets public. Um, I guess, I guess what's partly amazing to me is just like the way nba news goes from hypothetical to hypothetical to hypothetical right the knicks have been a hypothetical for nine years longer than that when did they start (laughs) dumping salaries to get lebron uh you Uh, know the first time that was 2010 right
0: they've been on and off
1: this for a while yeah so it's just like it's i guess what's amazing about the nba is if if there were an nfl team or any other team that had just done this year after year after year and had never actually been a coherent basketball team, we would have just given up, but make, whether it's the sort of weirdo glamor of the Knicks, a team that's never won anything considering how long they've been famous mm-hmm. um, or just the way that the thing, you know, the NBA works now, I guess is interesting. Also, like, so we did an emergency podcast about it. And there were so many good points made in that one was, I think it was Simmons just reeling off all the major NBA superstars that have changed teams in the last 18 months. Kawhi, Jimmy Butler, Chris Paul, Kyrie Irving, Paul George, Blake Griffin, Boogie Cousins, Porzingis, and Anthony Davis in the next, sometime <laughs> in the next five minutes, right? Mm-hmm. Which is just incredible yeah. Um, to think of how much news that has all you know, thrown off all those different moves. And also Chris Ryan made this point where he's talking about like why players want to constantly change teams now. And he said, I think if I wrote this down, right, the constant churn of action is creates more interest in who they are. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's, there's a, there's an, I want to win a title thing, which is very real, but there's also an, I am a brand entity beyond team and sport and everything else. And if I change teams, people will be more interested in me. You know, if I just say, like, I'm tired of this, I want to go do something else that will make my brand more potent. Sure, And that's really interesting to me. I guess I guess the funny thing is, is if, if it's like that, then is the right move to go to battle stations every time something like that happens? If if Trey, if if major NBA moves are that frequent and if they're being done with an eye toward like I just need to shake things up so I can get some more attention, at least at least partially, right? Some of, I mean, Porzingis obviously knew he wasn't going to win anything with the Knicks, so he wanted to leave. But some of it is about like resetting, new commercial opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. Do we in the media need to pay as much attention to these things, or should we rightly be like, well, that in a vacuum that seems like a giant trade, but we've just had nine giant trades or free agency moves in the last eighteen months, so maybe we should scale down our expectations of this thing.
0: Yes, I mean to the extent that some of these trades actually affect the balance of power in this season of the NBA, and I guess there—I mean, it's not—I mean, there's a few, right? I mean, Kawhi uh, Leonard—I mean—has made Toronto into a real contender. Um, Jimmy Butler. You know, hasn't been the the magic bullet in in Philly, but but certainly you know it makes them a lot more interesting. And then Boogie Cousins you know, signing with the Warriors, and now that he's playing, I mean that's that's you know that's that's a real thing. Paul George um, in Oklahoma City has been sort of a revelation, but there's you know and and whatever a, a revelation Davis,
1: that lost in the first round of the playoffs last year. Let's well, not last forget, year,
0: right? No, that that's true. This year he's, either, he, he's 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 on another level. But we'll see if that pans out. But I think that. I think that, you know, there there are those that are that are significant. Um, but and 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 I think the rest of them are just sort of this, you know, we by and large when we're talking about transactions, we're talking about upcoming draft picks, we're talking I mean, in most of these trades, we're we're talking about the sort of like the 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 post-warriors future of the NBA, right? Like what 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 the landscape will look like when there is a uh maybe as soon as next season when there's a, a little bit more parity or a little bit more opportunity for other teams but i think that's all part of this you know basketball twitter fanfic that that the league has become right i mean it's it's all it's a role-playing game, you know. It's a it's a tabletop card game or something. It's a it's 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 we're just we're just kind of like trading cards and 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 getting excited about you know these little these little chessboard moves. But yeah, the answer to like you know do we need to be giving this much attention? I mean, if we we do if we do if people care, right? And we all care, so.
1: Or maybe I put it a little differently, which is I don't have any moral objection to this, and I don't certainly don't have any moral objection to players deciding they want to play somewhere else because if it's generated by the player, to me, all the better. Mm-hmm. Um. I just wonder, do we need to think about NBA transactions differently if they're this frequent? And if if, quote unquote, major trades are are unprecedented, major trades are actually happening all the time. Should we should we think about it differently than maybe we did five, 10 years ago? I don't know the answer to that, but maybe right.
0: I mean, yeah. There's that. There, there's definitely a case to be made, and it's. I mean, there's also this question about what kind of constitutes a major trade. I think that more than anything, it's just the excitement and the hype. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of kind of strum and drawing about whether or not there's there's enough. You know, with all these superstar teams, everybody wants to play together. You know, what happens to the, to the teams that are left over? But like the list that you read. I mean, makes it sound like there's actually kind of plenty of superstars to go around, right? I mean, there's, there's, and, and then you have, you have teams like the Nuggets or whoever, who's like, who are, seem to be doing really well with just like kind of zero household names and only one and a half like super duper stars, you know? And it's, and it's, uh, you know, it, it is sort of interesting. I, but for, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, this is, I mean, there's there's no more interesting time of year than the time where you're just like constantly hitting refresh on the hoopside rumor page to see what's happening. I mean, it's it, it's 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 fun for me, and it's nice to you know I mean it's we just we just got done watching a really boring Super Bowl with a team that just like basically put together a fantasy team and uh, and could only score three points. So it's you know it's nice to to pay attention to a to a sport where you
1: know some of these transactions might be a little bit more meaningful. Did you just use the term "Sturm und Drang" multiple <laughs> times in this podcast? Did I use it twice? I think so. Oh my I gosh! So. We'll hope I, set right. I hope I said it right. I hope I said it right one of those times. That'd be great. Uh, next uh, next week, make sure you switch to Doppelganger or Bildungsroman if you want to mix in some more. Uh, <laughs> mix in some more <laughs> German. The more German, Speaking the better. We're reaching yeah. for your thesaurus. Yeah. Um, all right, David. Let's do the notebook dump. I got some 2020 updates for you i think we have our first campaign and disarray story which is tulsi gabbard <laughs> which is probably the odds-on favorite <laughs> for campaign and disarray right um this comes to us from politico the gabbard campaign saying they are dumping the consultants that they just hired uh new york times uh reporter jonathan martin notes that this is You know, the old uh, campaign excuse when you fire a bunch of uh, people in your campaign is, oh, the plan was always for them just to stay through the primary. They weren't going to stay through the general election this time. uh, He says the plan was always for them just to stay through the campaign launch. Right. So it's just literally days under our employment. Also, uh, via Martin, Gabbard dropped the first use, the first documented use of the word neoliberal as a as a as a bad word during the campaign. (laughs) She tweeted, as Commander-in-Chief, I will work to end the new Cold War, nuclear arms race, and slide into nuclear war. That is why the neocon neo-lib neolib warmongers will do anything to stop me. So that was wow. funny. Yeah. The um, a tweet from journalism professor Matthew Pressman. He says, consensus among journalists and media critics is that election coverage suffers too much uh, from too much horse race coverage and treating politics like a sport. So the Washington post decides to ati- assign 13 of its top analysts to do a power ranking of 2020 <laughs> candidates. Just to note that the power ranking is not it's not just for NBA news anymore. Um, I i don't think we can cast aspersions on power rankings here at the rigor, but just, just, just throwing that out there. I'm um, just mad they
0: got to that first. Jeez.
1: <laughs> probably, we should have done that on the press box. The, um, you know, I always like to keep track of all the people who are calling the end of Donald Trump's presidency. So I was attracted to this tweet from constitutional law professor Lawrence Tribe, who writes the great Robert J. Lifton. I don't know who the great Robert J. Lifton is, but let's just go with this. The great Robert J. Lifton makes a persuasive case that a failure to get his wall will deflate Trump's balloon and mark the beginning of the, of his presidency's end. So Mark down February 3rd as the day that the great Robert J. Lifton declared that Trump's presidency was over or the beginning of Trump's, the end of Trump's presidency. Somebody's going to be right. One of these days. It's true. It, it may, it may be November, 2020, but somebody is going to correctly predict the end of Trump's presidency. Um, and finally, <laughs> David, bad news of the week. I thought we should have a section called bad news of the week because something horrible happens to journalists every week now. Vice media announced it's laying off 250 people or 10% of its workforce. And um, I don't know how to talk about this anymore other than just pick somebody who's been affected and actually read their tweet. So this is Nigel Duara veteran of vice. All right, folks, the layoffs finally came for me after dodging them at Gannett and AP. I think I was kind of due. love the folks. I worked with at Vice, and do watch the show. 730 weeknights. Anyway, email in the bio soon so i feel that could be a horrible coda for this era of web journalism Mm. email in the bio maybe maybe that's the name of the segment from now on jesus um and i'm guessing more bad news next week but um anyway can't joke about the media for the for the whole time without uh without trying to wrap your mind around that stuff all right folks that's the press box he is david shoemaker i'm brian curtis research from chris almeida Production from Jim Cunningham. We're back next week with more hot takes on the media. See you then, David. See you later, man. David. Yeah. Did you happen to notice, David? I'm a rich guy. Mm -hmm. I know how to solve problems. Yeah. That is why the Neocon Neolib warmongers will do anything to stop me. Right. Well, first of all,
0: uh, tell us what you believe. You know, don't tell us what you're... At the end of the day, we're all going to
1: die. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You egotistical billionaire...
0: (laughs) Oh, that's good.